Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. I'm Dallas Taylor, and this is part two of the story of mastering. In the last episode, we looked at the history of mastering. Up until the 80s, the constraints of analog equipment meant that music had to be mastered on the quieter side. While this may sound like a bad thing, the upside is that music from this era has really strong dynamics, almost across the board. Pick nearly any song from the 70s or older, and you'll find a striking contrast between the quietest parts and the loudest parts. This gives music a much more spacious and vibrant quality. But once digital technology took over, things changed pretty quickly. New audio technology allowed mastering engineers to make songs much louder. Artists also started trying to one-up each other with how loud their songs were, and music overall got louder and louder. But all of this volume came at a price, and music became so compressed that it lost a lot of that impact and depth. The loudness war had begun. For some people in the industry, even music that was pushed right up to the limit wasn't quite loud enough. But if you've already compressed a song as much as possible, what happens when you try to make it even louder? Beyond that, you can actually start to get distortion, where if you just push the loudness up so that it hits that digital ceiling, where the tops of the waveforms, the musical waveforms, are literally sliced straight off, you get an effect called clipping. That sounds distorted. That's Ian Shepard, a professional mastering engineer who also hosts a podcast called The Mastering Show. When you clip... You literally are inserting a little blip of noise. And that's Greg Milner. Greg writes about music and technology and wrote a book called Perfecting Sound Forever, an oral history of recorded music. At that moment, the digital system is just saying, I can't read this. So if you're careful with it, you just do it every once in a while and the clips last just a fraction of a second. Supposedly, you're not going to be able to hear those parts. But a lot of recording engineers and musicians will say, yes, you can. Just imagine what would happen if you started pushing up every nanosecond of a song until it clipped. Pretty soon, all of that clipping would start to overpower the actual music. If you kept going and going, eventually you'll be left with pure white noise. So whenever a song is clipping, it's like a little bit of music has been cut out and replaced with white noise. Human ears aren't supposed to hear this type of noise all the time. This is very difficult to prove, and I don't know if it ever will be proven, but you ask a lot of engineers and they'll tell you that it causes fatigue. Some people will even say that it's a physical fatigue, that your eardrums are just being bombarded by these compressed parts and you are less likely to listen to music for long periods of time. If you look at the waveform of a song in an audio program, you'll see how the sound waves swell at the loudest parts and shrink at the quieter parts. But if you look at the song that's clipping, you'll see that the sound waves no longer have these dramatic peaks and valleys. When the sound clips, the sound waves actually look like mountaintops with the peaks shaved off, which is not the way sound waves ever behave in nature. If a song is compressed enough, the waveform will look like a flat block, almost like a floating row of bricks in Mario. When a song has had this done to it, engineers will often say it's brick-walled. And since the 90s, a ton of albums have been given the brick-wall treatment. If you look at certain recordings that really are notorious for being 
really poorly mastered in terms of loudness. The Red Hot Chili Peppers' Californication for a long time was really exhibit A. There's so much compression and clipping in that, it just assaults the ears. As the name implies, brickwalled music often has a kind of wall of sound quality to it, where instruments struggle to stand out from each other. The snare drum doesn't really pop like it normally would. It just sounds kind of squashed, because it is. It's almost just like every single sound in a song is exactly the same volume. Take a listen to Spaceman by The Killers and see if you can hear what I mean. Compare that to the 1978 song Roxanne by The Police, and you can sense a little bit more of a natural difference between the instruments. But one album in particular has become the poster child for the loudness war. Death Death Magnetic Magnetic by Metallica. Metallica. So the Death Magnetic album by Metallica was one of the first albums that really caught the public attention as far as the issue of the loudness war was concerned. What happened was that a fan emailed the mastering engineer complaining about the sound of the CD. And the mastering engineer replied off the record saying, yeah, I'm not super proud of this one, but it's what the band wanted and it is what it is. According to that fan, here's the actual response they received from the mastering engineer. Quote, I'm certainly sympathetic to your reaction. I get to slam my head against that brick wall every day. In this case, the mixes were already brick walled before they arrived at my place. Suffice it to say, I would never be pushed to overdrive things as far as they are here. Believe me, I'm not proud to be associated with this one. And we can only hope that some good will come from this in some form of backlash against volume above all else. Unquote. The fan then published this on a forum in public. So suddenly everybody could see what was meant to have been a quiet, private comment by the mastering engineer. And Actually, I spotted this and wrote about it on my blog at the time. And Music Radar and Wired Magazine and ultimately the Wall Street Journal picked up on the story and it was briefly in the news. And there was actually a petition signed with 20,000 fans asking for the album to be remixed and remastered. When 20,000 Metallica fans start complaining about an album being too loud, there might be a problem. The really fascinating thing about it, though, was that as well as the CD release, the soundtrack was available as part of the Guitar Hero game on the PlayStation. We think what happened was that the files were sent out to the game manufacturers earlier on in the production process before the decision was made to go for this extremely loud final result. So the files that were used in the game were much cleaner, less distorted than what came out on the CD. Some of the fans much preferred the sound of the Guitar Hero version to the released CD. Let's listen to the two versions and see if we can hear the difference. We've matched the loudness levels so you can focus on the quality of the sound. Here's a clip from the Guitar Hero version. And here's that same clip from the CD release. 
the CD version just sounds awful. Here's another clip from the Guitar Hero version. And here's the CD. It's important to note that in order to match the volume levels in these clips, the CD version had to be turned way down. Here's the actual difference in volume. We'll start with the Guitar Hero version. Now brace yourselves, you might even want to pull out your earbuds. Here's the CD version. It's very unusual for us as music fans to get the opportunity to compare the final sound of an album with how it might have sounded earlier on in the process. The original CD release of Death Magnetic is an extreme example, but the unfortunate truth is that the vast majority of mainstream music from the last few decades has had some version of this hyper-compression treatment. That means that for most of the music that came out in the last 30 years, there's a better-sounding version that we'll probably never get to hear. I found you could almost choose stuff at random. Let's get it started by the Black Eyed Peas is a really big offender. The Fallen by Franz Ferdinand. Vapor Trails by Rush was another one that was so poorly mastered that the fans actually rebelled. When Rush released Vapor Trails in 2002, a lot of their fans were unhappy with how it sounded, and the band actually agreed. In 2013, they had the entire album remixed and remastered. Let's take a listen to those two versions and see how they compare. By the way, we are adjusting the volume levels of these examples so we can compare quality, not the loudness. Here's a clip from the original version. That guitar sounds kind of crackly, almost like it's a broken speaker. Here's the same clip from the remastered version. Everything sounds so much cleaner. Here's the original again. And here's the remaster. Vapor Trails is a rare example of a band remastering an album specifically to improve its dynamics. Plenty of times, though, you'll hear fans complain that the remastered version of a classic album destroys the dynamics of the original. Yeah, remastering is a bit of a controversial topic. There have been reissues of classic albums where they've been pushed to the kind of extreme loudness war levels that we've heard recently, which is not always in the best interest of the material. Albums by bands like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones get remastered and re-released over and over. When a new remaster comes out, services like iTunes and Spotify usually remove the older versions from their library. Unfortunately, these new versions might not be as dynamic as the ones they're replacing. 
our whole perception of what classic music sounds like is shaped by specific releases that we get to hear. But as newer versions replace old ones, that history is constantly being rewritten. These issues don't just affect one or two styles of music. No genre has been safe from the loudness war. Unfortunately, we now have the situation where it's not being driven by the genre. Some music really benefits from a louder, aggressive sound. But if you want to take hip-hop as a genre, you can compare a typical hip-hop song today to a hip-hop song from the so-called golden era in the 80s and 90s. And I guarantee you that the ones from the 80s and the 90s are going to have a bigger dynamic range. Here's a clip from Young MC's Bust a Move from 1989. She's dressed in yellow. She says, hello, come sit next to me, you fine fellow. You run over there without a second to lose. And what comes next? Hey, Bust a Move. And here's All of the Lights by Kanye West from 2010. Ironically, some of the most dynamic releases recently have actually been metal albums, which is an extreme loud genre. This is the song Of Unworldly Origin by the band Revocation. Whereas you get other kind of saccharine pop stuff that's pushed to within an inch of its life. I mean, the last Miley Cyrus album was a kind of country folky thing. And it was as loud as Skrillex. <laughs> Which just feels insane. According to Ian, mastering engineers face a lot of pressure to make music as loud as possible. Most mastering engineers, if you ask them, would say that they prefer not to go for the super loud stuff. I'm really lucky because I've talked about this issue for a long time. Most people know that I'm a fan of dynamics and I'm not a fan of super loud mastering. So most of the people who come to me are not asking for extreme loudness, but a ton of my colleagues in the industry, all they get is requests for things to be louder. You know, the classic comment when they get back the master is, it sounds great, but please can you make it louder? And even though these issues have gotten a lot more attention recently, Ian says that not much has changed. Over the last five years, lots more people are aware of this issue and the reasons you might not want to go super loud, but they still request it anyway, because there's this idea that maybe they need it in order to compete or to sell lots of copies or to get the right sound for the style that they're performing in. None of that, in my experience, is true. I mean, there's research to show that loudness has no effect on the sales. There's research to show that users don't really care what the loudness is. It's all about the music. So it's not just mastering engineers who are responsible for making music louder. Musicians, mixers, producers, and basically everyone involved in the music production process have a role in the loudness wars. But there are signs of hope, and they're hiding in some pretty surprising places. More after this. Why should you learn another language with Babbel? Well, there are a ton of reasons, but let's see how many I can fit into 60 seconds. First, Babbel works fast. You can start having conversations in another language in as little as three weeks. Next, it makes overseas vacations more fun and less stressful. I used it all the time on my last trip to Italy. If you work with foreign collaborators, Babbel can help you deepen those relationships. It's a fun thing to do when you need a break, and it's way better than doom scrolling. 
Babbel teaches you about other cultures. Speaking for myself, learning something new just makes me feel good. It's very affordable. And finally, signing up for Babbel helps support 20,000 Hertz. Okay, make that eight reasons, or otto ragioni, as they'd say in Italian. To get started on a new language today, here's a special limited time deal for 20,000 Hertz listeners. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription right now at babbel.com slash 20K. This offer is only available for our listeners. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash 20K for 55% off. Babbel.com slash 20K. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For me, the hardest part of hiring is narrowing down the search. And that's where Indeed can help. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million visitors every month. That makes it the world's largest platform for finding skilled staff. In fact, during the time it'll take me to read this ad, 23 people will have been hired on Indeed. Whenever we list a job, we get a lot of applications. So many of them are from brilliant and talented people. But it can be really hard to have those applications rise to the top. With Indeed's smart matching engine, that process becomes a lot easier. And over time, the matching engine learns your preferences. The more you use it, the more efficient it becomes. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers said that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Right now, our listeners can get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash Hertz. That's Indeed.com slash H-E-R-T-Z. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Starting in the 90s, popular music became completely consumed by the loudness war. Most albums since then have been extremely loud and compressed, and many have been pushed so high that they clip and distort unnaturally. Nirvana's Nevermind arrived in 1991, just as this trend was catching on. Nevermind became one of the best-selling albums of all time, but by today's standards, it's pretty quiet. On the other hand, Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers came out eight years later, and it was also a huge hit. Californication is a great album, but for better or worse, it's super loud and super compressed. So I wonder, if it had been a little quieter with stronger dynamics, would it really have hurt sales? I'm not saying that music should sound exactly the same way as it was in the 1970s, but surely there's a middle ground between the extremely light touch of the 70s and the heavy-handed approach that took over in the 90s. There are ways to do music that's very compressed, that competes in the loudness wars and still has enough of a, a range from the difference between average levels and peak levels to really sound nice. 
So you're always looking for the loudness sweet spot, that perfect balance between loudness and dynamics, where it's loud enough, but it works musically, the sound is right, and it has the right emotional impact. In recent years, some artists and mastering engineers seem to have found this sweet spot and have made big hits. For example, Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars was a huge hit. Get Lucky by Daft Punk. Like the legend of the phoenix. <laughs> All ends with beginnings. Get Lucky by Daft Punk, I think, is a good example. If you look at it on paper, you look at the peaks and the averages, it looks like it's just peaking nonstop, but it's very subtly done so that there's enough of a difference between the averages and the peaks to really sound nice. God's Plan by Drake is a massive worldwide hit and is not ridiculously loud. And you know me, turn the into the Without 40, Ollie, Debbie, no me. In terms of the Grammy winners, the song that Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga did, if you look at that, that's got a more traditional sort of dynamic range. One interesting one, if you want to talk about going against the trend, is Chinese Democracy by Guns N' Roses. Especially given that they were out of the public eye for so long, you might think that they'd want to come back with a huge bang. The story I heard from Bob Ludwig, the mastering engineer, is that he mastered three versions of that album and played them for Axel, and Axel chose the one that was the least compressed. Bob Ludwig, who's a legend, offers his artists the choice. And if they choose the super loud version, that's the version that he goes with. But he personally prefers more dynamics, balanced dynamics. This loudness sweet spot applies to remastering as well. While some remasters have been overly compressed, others have done a great job preserving the dynamics of the originals while making them sound even better. The reissues of the Beatles original albums that were done a few years ago are a fantastic example of that. They preserved everything that was great about the originals and they sound even better than they have before. Let's see if we can hear how the sound changed across a few different Beatles releases. Here's the original version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And here's the remaster from 2009. And here's the remixed and remastered Super Deluxe Edition from 2017. All three versions sound great, but the newest one somehow manages to sound the most punchy and the most spacious. Let's do another example. Here's the very first mix of Back in the USSR from the White Album. And here's the 2009 remaster. The US, back in the US, back in the US, all. 
And here's the remixed and remastered version from 2018. These albums were recorded over 50 years ago. But by using the master tapes, the engineers at Abbey Road made these classic albums sound like they were recorded yesterday. Audio tape was patented all the way back in 1929. In the nine decades since then, a massive history of music has been recorded on analog tape. For special projects like the Beatles remasters, you can go back to these original tapes and use modern technology to bring the sound quality into the 21st century. But what if we lose these tapes? In 2008, there was a fire at the Universal Studios vault. The fire started from construction work on the roof. Universal Music Group hasn't released the exact details on this fire, but it's estimated that there were over 100,000 tapes with 500,000 songs stored in this vault. The list of artists is unbelievably long, and there's no way I could go through the entire thing now. But just casually looking over it, here's a tiny fraction of whose master tapes were probably stored there. Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Billie Holiday, Patsy Cline, Chuck Berry, Aretha Franklin, Elton John, Leonard Skinner, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Buffett, The Eagles, Aerosmith, Steely Dan, Iggy Pop, Barry White, Patti LaBelle, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, The Who, The Police, Sting, George Strait, Dolly Parton, R.E.M., Janet Jackson, Guns N' Roses, Queen Latifah, Mary J. Blige, Sonic Youth, No Doubt, Nine Inch Nails, Snoop Dogg, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Hole, Beck, Sheryl Crow, Tupac, Eminem, 50 Cent, The Roots. This is a tiny, tiny fraction of what could have been in this vault. We don't know for sure because in the 10 years after the fire, there still hasn't been a full confirmation. Losing even just one master tape is a huge hit to the music industry. If these original master tapes were indeed destroyed and had not been digitized, this is the biggest loss in our modern music history. That would also mean that none of these albums would have the opportunity to be remixed and remastered in the future like what we heard with the Beatles. In recent years, music production has become almost completely digital. But a lot of people still prefer the sound and experience of analog. So many modern artists have been releasing their music on vinyl. And that's an encouraging sign for the loudness wars. Vinyl is the only medium in the music industry that's actually growing. Vinyl technology hasn't changed a whole lot since the 70s. Due to the sensitivity of the cutting equipment, there's still a hard limit on how loud you can make a vinyl record. As vinyl sales rebound, mastering engineers are being forced to consider how their mixes will sound on vinyl, just like they used to. I wrote a blog post a few years ago recommending that people master as if it's going to vinyl, but use that same master everywhere for online and for CD and everywhere else because that master will translate and will work everywhere. If a client was insisting on a super loud master for the CD release, for example, I would always encourage them to send a more dynamic version for the vinyl cut, simply because, as we said, there's a physical limitation. And again, there's no point in pushing that loudness super hard in the mastering for the vinyl if it's gonna get turned down at the cutting stage anyway. And actually, you do see a fair number of releases these days where the vinyl master actually sounds quite a bit different from the CD master for that reason. But the biggest change in recent years is the way most of us consume music, by streaming it. When it comes to sound quality, there are pros and cons to streaming services like Spotify, Pandora, and Apple. 
On the one hand, they compress audio files down to make them smaller. This data compression can definitely result in a lower quality sound. This is primarily so you can stream it and not eat up your cell phone's data plan. But there's another thing these platforms do to songs that's actually pretty great. The interesting thing about streaming is that because sudden changes in loudness are the number one source of user complaints in TV and radio and also online, streaming services like YouTube and Spotify and Tidal, they want to give people the best user experience. So they have started measuring the loudness of songs that they're playing back and they turn louder songs down to stop people being blasted by sudden increases in loudness. They keep it on a constant level because otherwise, especially if you were listening to a mix, if you were listening to Pandora or something, you'd have to be constantly adjusting your volume knob to deal with the fact that some records were louder than others. And that's had two interesting effects. One is that it has removed the incentive, really, to make stuff super loud in the first place. You've got to figure that if you make music, a lot of it is going to be listened to through some sort of streaming service, just because that's the way a lot of people listen to music today. 87% of US music industry revenue in 2017 came from non-physical formats. So only 13% came from CDs and vinyl and cassettes. Everything else was from streaming and downloads. So when that many people are hearing music for the first time online, the temptation to try and use loudness to stand out kind of goes away because even if you make something super loud, it's going to get turned down afterwards. And then you have the situation where maybe some of those compromises that we've talked about in order to get that super loud sound in the first place actually become more obvious when they're compared to other songs that were more dynamic to begin with. Because you have this song that was kind of swashed into this small space in order to get the loudness up there. But then you reduce the loudness again and suddenly it sounds kind of held in and constrained in comparison to the music that had more space to breathe in the first place. Really, if you're a smart artist, you know that and you don't use hypercompression because there's really no point to it. A few artists have actually started making two different versions of their tracks. A more dynamic one that they send to streaming platforms and a more compressed one that gets put on the CD and on iTunes. Some people are optimizing music for streaming services. For example, the YouTube version of Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet is actually more dynamic than the iTunes version. Let's see if we can tell the difference. Here's the iTunes version. And now, here's the more dynamic YouTube version. For me, I think it sounds better as a result. I mean, they both sound fantastic, but the YouTube version just sounds incredible. And the iTunes version, to me, when I compare it, just sounds held in. It's a bit more in a box. It's a bit more constrained. As an artist, is it really fair to give paying fans a worse sounding version of your new album? Doing so isn't just a disservice to them. It's a disservice to the music you worked so hard to make. Why would you want to limit the tools that you have at your disposal? And I really think that's what hyperdynamic range compression does. It just takes a tool out of the toolbox, and there's no reason to do it. If you like to listen to your music loud, the best tool is your volume knob. Making music louder and mastering just for the sake of being loud simply degrades the overall quality of sound. This brings us to why dynamic range even matters in the first place. 
Well, you think about it in terms of what music and sound is, right? It's a sonic palette, and there's different ways to use that palette. One of the ways is to vary the music from soft parts to loud parts. It sounds very elementary, but it's very important. You can say your music sounds fine today, and I'm not going to argue with that, but it really is undeniable that there is an important part of that sonic palette that just is not being used. And I think that a lot of music benefits from that kind of roller coaster ride of soft to loud to soft. You know, we like our ears to be kind of tickled by these really quick bursts of high energy that go from soft to loud. So that's why I think it's important. Let's use Photoshop as an analogy. Think about all of the tools you can use to tweak an image. You've got brightness, contrast, saturation, temperature. Dynamic range in a song is like contrast in a photo. High contrast means that there's a stark difference between dark and light, loud and soft. But when music has had all of the dynamics drained out of it, it's like the contrast is stuck at its lowest setting. The image becomes gray, flat, and lifeless. Turning up the brightness on that gray image is like boosting the volume on a hyper-compressed song. Now you're left with an image that's almost completely white. Think about if we treated photography like we treat our music, and made all of these photos just as bright as possible so they could stand out from each other. Just think about how much less impactful those photos would be. There are various examples of albums where I love the music, and I just find them frustrating to listen to because the sound doesn't do what I want emotionally. It just feels like a missed opportunity to me, and especially if it's music where I love it and I want it to have that emotional impact. But it doesn't have to be this way. Since streaming services even out the volume between tracks, artists don't really have to worry about standing out with ultra-loud music. So while it was digital technology that started the loudness war in the first place, ironically, digital technology might be the thing that finally ends it. Because we don't have to compete for loudness anymore, we can just choose whatever's perfect for the music itself and know that it's going to be played back on a level playing field. For me, it's an opportunity to go back to what mastering is all about, which is making the music as good as it can possibly be. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design team that makes television, film, and games sound incredible. Find out more at defactosound.com. This episode was written and produced by Casey Emerling. And me, Dallas Taylor. With help from Sam Sneebly. It was sound edited by Soren Bejan. It was sound designed and mixed by Nick Spradlin. Special thanks to our guests, Greg Milner and Ian Shepard. If you want to dive deeper into these subjects, be sure to check out Ian's podcast. It's called The Mastering Show. His website is called Production Advice. And check out Greg Milner's book, Perfecting Sound Forever. You'll find links in the show description. The background music in this episode came from our friends at Musicbed. Visit musicbed.com to explore their huge library of awesome music. What album captivates you with its amazing sound quality? You can tell me on Twitter, Facebook, or through our website, 20k.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tell your friends and family about us. Also, if there's anyone in your life that records music seriously, be sure to tell them about these two mastering episodes. And finally, support the artists you love by buying their music. And buy it in high quality. Thanks for listening.